The Truth of Poetry Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 So, today finally we get into the poem itself. And if Virgil is too daunting, which he is for a lot of people, we could just as easily begin with Gilbert and Sullivan's. So let's do it that way. I have Gilbert and Sullivan on my mind because last uh, Sunday we, we, we went and saw the Pirates of Penzance. And uh, it turns out that the Pirates of Penzance is a very good story for talking about some of these things. If you want to talk about it in a light uh, way, you may remember towards the end of that musical, there's a scene in which the pirates and the police confront each other, the forces of law and order and the pirates confront each other. Clearly, the pirates are the more powerful group. Uh, and so there's a kind of a standoff. What's going to take place here? And there, there's a song, there's a number that the police sing, the forces of law and order sing. And the refrain of the song, which I'm just recalling from memory, so I might have a couple of the words wrong, but the refrain goes something like this. When a constabulary duty must be done, a policeman's work is not a pleasant one. <laughs> And they sing this as they're walking around these very intimidating pirates. And it's, it's a question of civilization and barbarism, you see, only in a very light way. It looks as though it's not going to be solved because the forces of barbarism are, are more powerful than the forces of uh, civilization. Suddenly, Queen Victoria is invoked. And in this marvelous production that I saw, as her name is invoked, coming from the behind the stage, up above the stage, dropping down, is this marvelous portrait of Queen Victoria. And at the invocation of her name and the coming down of this image of Queen Victoria, everyone recognizes, oh yes, the, these, these people represent the Queen, and everybody falls into order. It's like a comic version of that last scene in, in Lord of the Flies, where the, the boys are all rushing around, and suddenly they see this British naval officer in all of his finest uniform, and they just realize, oh, well, the, you know, the game is up. This guy is really the, in charge, and we should straighten up our lives and, and uh, cease to be savages and so on. So it's that automatic thing. But what was so funny about this Pirates of Penzance production is that it was literally a deus ex machina in the old sense. You know, in the Greek uh, tragedy, when, there, when a situation is uh, set in motion which is so scandalous that there's no way out of it, it's so reciprocal, and so unresolvable at the level at which it's evolved, there's simply no way for the parties involved to adjudicate the thing. Some appeal to transcendence has to be made. And the way in which that was done in the old Greek theater is the deus ex machina, the god from the machine. Something would be let down that would represent this divine presence in the face of which everyone would uh, either recognize the transcendent significance or, or cower into submission. So the deus ex machina comes in to solve the problem. So that's really a summation, in a way, of the problem that Virgil faces. Virgil is living at the end of a, of a time of terrible bloody civil war, and Augustus Caesar has now taken power, and he has shown that he is ready and capable of using that power magnanimously. There's a difference between using power magnanimously and being powerless, he used his power to civilize. It was still power. It was still Roman power. He used it in such a way that it inspired people like Virgil to think, 
maybe we now have in place the instruments of civilization. And with the right people to work those instruments, we might begin to contain human violence. So there's this great hope. And what Virgil wants to do, essentially, is to do for his world what the portrait of Victoria did for the musical The Pirates of Penzance. He wants to invoke Augustus Caesar and all that he represents in that same way so that everyone realizes, yes, it is finally to this power uh, and what it stands for that we must all submit if we're going to be civilized. And we can say, people sometimes, you know, I think shallow criticism of Virgil is he was just uh, singing the song of his patron, really, and, and he was supporting the status quo or something like that. But I think if you understand the historical background, you realize that Virgil is afraid. You could say that, to some extent, Virgil is writing this poem not as a suburbanite who wants to support the power structure, but as someone who's been to Rwanda and back and who has some appreciation for Pax Romana and what the world would look like without it. He feels that the only civilizing force formidable enough to deal with the forces of fury and violence is the one personified by Augustus Caesar. And he wants to tell the story of the historical journey that leads to Augustus Caesar so that uh, everyone will recognize the sacred significance of Augustus's reign and what it means for human history. So I was delighted to see this image of Victoria come down because and solve the problem because I thought, there you have it, exactly. The other connection between the Pirates of Penzance and the Aeneid is that the hero in the Pirates of Penzance is Frederick. The subtitle of the musical is The Slave of Duty. And Frederick is the slave of duty. And Aeneas is the slave of duty in this epic. His life does not belong to himself. His life is an instrument in the hands of another will. For us, I would say, however, that the, the hero of the Aeneid that we'll be reading should be Virgil and not Aeneas. Now, the hero Aeneas is himself a kind of, not exactly an anti-hero, but he's certainly not a typical hero. And the same, of course, would be true of Virgil. He's not a typical hero. What you see in Aeneas is his failure and his suffering and what he learns from failure and suffering. So that via failure and suffering, he becomes the kind of person who will be the kind of person who can manipulate the structures of power in a benign way. That only someone who has experienced failure and suffering, this is how Virgil would see it, only someone who has experienced failure and suffering uh, can be trusted with the instruments of power. Now, as we know, that uh, provides some assurance, but not very great, really. I mean, there are plenty of people who've experienced failure and suffering, and when they get their hands on the reins of power, they just turn them loose in the same old way. Nevertheless, there's some truth to that. You would say, all things being equal, you'd rather have somebody who's had the experience of failure and suffering uh, than somebody who hasn't. You don't want some yuppie running the show. I, but I would say the person whose failures and sufferings we might keep an eye on, out of the corner of our eye at least, is Virgil. And his failures and sufferings are, his sufferings are spiritual and his failures are 
literary. I should say his failures are not literary, because in a literary sense, he's quite successful. His failures are mythological. He fails to provide a sufficiently opaque mythological screen for his story. He's unable to sacralize Roman violence as thoroughly as he wants to. And I think this is amazing to think about it because Virgil was one of the greatest literary figures in history. He's tremendously competent, a literary figure. And you would think, well, when somebody like Virgil sets his mind to a task, he can do it. Uh, he can, if he wants to mythologize this thing, he can do it. And he did want to. And he had good reason to. He wanted to bring the, the image of Victoria down and, and stop the violence. He couldn't do it entirely. And what that says to us, to use New Testament lingo, is that the gospel is more powerful than myth. That is to say, he knew, he didn't know the gospel, but he knew something about the other side of the story, the side not told, which is the story of the defeated ones, the story of the victim. He knew something about the sacrificial structure of conventional cultural life, but he didn't know it from a gospel point of view. Nevertheless, he knew enough about that so that even though he was determined to mythologize the violence, he couldn't quite do it. I've said this every week since we've begun this series, but I think it's quite remarkable to realize that as soon as you know it's too much, the game is up. You can't really do it. And Virgil tries. Now, I want to get finally get into the text this morning, but before we do, and thinking about the image of Queen Victoria and Pirates of Penzance reminded me of a poem which I've always thought of as being an interesting poem. And it's a poem by Oliver Wendell Holmes entitled God Save the Flag. And you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, at the center of his adult life was the American Civil War. So in a way, he shares Virgil's gestalt. Of course, the flag would have represented the Union. It was the Augustan image, you could say, during and after the American Civil War. And it was for America what the image of Queen Victoria was, you see. So Oliver Wendell Holmes is trying to do for post-Civil War era in America what Gilbert and Sullivan were trying to do for the pirates and the, and the police in the story and what Virgil is trying to do for the people in the Roman Empire in his story. So that's one thing to note about this poem. And the other thing to note, which this is not exactly germane to Virgil, but I always think of this poem as relevant to uh, cultural life today because it's a graphic illustration of how at a certain point in Western history, the need to sacralize acts of collective violence had to shift its iconography from explicit Christian references to nationalistic references. There came a point when you couldn't sacralize Western collective violence by invoking explicit Christian imagery because it was too antithetical. We look back now and we think, why wasn't it antithetical all along? Well, that's because we human beings are very slow learners. Uh, it was antithetical all along, of course. The, the Christian story is the story of the, the victim of collective violence, as Urban II did in the Crusades, you know, to point to the cross as an emblem under 
whose banner we will conquer all the infidels. It's completely ludicrous. Parenthetically, it created Western civilization, so we inherit the sin and the cultural accomplishment at the same time. Nevertheless, people used to be able to do that, and there came a point in Western history when you couldn't do it anymore. The humanists nowadays love to point to the few remaining people that are still trying to do it, but they're such curiosity pieces. You know, nobody tries to do it anymore. So what I'm trying to say is Oliver Wendell Holmes' poem represents an example of what happens when you can no longer directly invoke New Testament imagery and you have to use something else. He uses nationalistic imagery because nationalism became the new idolatry, the new form of sacralization. But notice that it's just shot through with biblical images, almost all of which are Old Testament images. Here's how the poem goes. Actually, the first reference in the poem and the last one uh, is an echo of a New Testament text, but it's the book of the Apocalypse. And one could say the book of the Apocalypse is the New Testament text that's most still in the orbit of Old Testament sensibilities. Uh, so, so there you have it. Anyway, the poem starts this way. Washed in the blood of the brave and the blooming, snatched from the altars of insolent foes, burning with fire stars but never consuming, flash its broad ribbons of lily and rose. So he's talking about the flag. But you see all the, all the religious imagery. It drips with sacrality. Altars, uh, insolent foes, fires that burn but do not consume, uh, etc. Washed in the blood of the brave and the blooming. The echo here in the book of the Apocalypse is washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is a, a reference to martyrdom, you see. Now, we're talking about washed in the blood of the brave and the blooming, meaning soldiers who simply happen to have gotten killed on the battlefield. But nevertheless, you see what's happening. It's a transplantation of the old sacralizing gesture from a, an explicit Christian reference to a, a nationalistic slash Old Testament set of icons or iconography. So it goes on, vainly the prophets of Baal would rend it. Baal was the God who represented all that was pagan for the, the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Vainly the prophets of Baal would rend it. Vainly his worshipers pray for its fall. Thousands have died for it. Millions defend it. Emblem of justice and mercy for all. Justice that reddens the sky with her terrors. Mercy that comes with her white-handed train. Soothing all passions, redeeming all errors, sheathing the saber and breaking the chain. Born on the deluge of old usurpations, drifted our ark o'er the desolate seas. So it's an explicit reference from the Ark of the Covenant to the flag. Bearing the rainbow of hope to the nations, torn from the storm cloud and flung to the breeze. Final stanza, God bless the flag and its royal defenders while its broad folds o'er the battlefield wave till the dim star wreath rekindle its splendors washed from its stains in the blood of the brave. What we need here is, is a kind of epidemiological study of how this sacralizing tendency shifts from Christian imagery to nationalistic imagery. And, and this poem is, it would be a classic in that study. Uh, and it shifts because the non-sacrificial nature of the Christian revelation is becoming palpable as the paraclete proceeds to reveal the power of that tradition to us. And therefore, we simply can't sacralize in its name anymore.
of course, Oliver Wendell Holmes had no trouble. I would say partly he had no trouble, not because he had pernicious interests, because he didn't. Uh, but in part, he had less trouble than we do, because he lived 100 years earlier. And in part, because he lived in the, he was writing in the aftermath of the Great Civil War. And the Civil War scared the pants off him, just the same way it did scare the toga off of Virgil. In the aftermath of these things, one begins to look on Pax Romana with a good deal more sympathy. And the idea of sacralizing it, it comes naturally. Because we realize, same that just the way Gilbert and Sullivan realized, that unless you bring that image to bear, you can have the breakout of another round of civil war. And it's always this question of civil war, you know, we think a civil war starts and then finished. The civil war is like an infection. You know, you take a round of antibiotics and then you take the second round and then you wait a couple of days and hope the damn thing doesn't return. That's the way civil war is. I mean, it just simmers just below the surface and you realize it could go at any time. And so people who have this little moment of respite, they have it under a dispensation. You know, certain things have happened. There's been a final violence, you know, a final battle or a, an execution of a leader or something has happened that has sort of brought that latest one to an end. And the impulse is to sacralize that, which will put an end to it. And that's exactly the kind of impulse that's driving, I think, Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and Virgil at, in the Aeneid. Okay, so to get into the Aeneid is that we have a story. His model for the story is Homer, the two epics of Homer. Go ahead and start with the first line. The first line of the poem is, I sing of arms and of the man, and the man is a pilgrim. So the story of arms, or war, which is the second half of the Aeneid, books 7 to 12, is Virgil's Iliad. The first half is the story of the wanderings of Aeneas from the destruction of his first home, Troy, to the settlement in Italy, which is the beginning of what will later become Rome. So it's the journey from the old world, which is now destroyed and left behind, to the new world. It's the journey home, the paradigm of which is Homer's Odyssey. So you have the first part is the Odyssey, the second part is the Iliad. I, I want to keep bringing out biblical echoes, because not because there was any influence, by the way. Virgil didn't know the Hebrew Scripture. But he intuitively appeals to many of the same motifs that you find in the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, the Hebrew Scriptures start with Abraham. I mean, you could say the journey of the people of Israel starts with Abraham. God says, leave the your land, your familiar place, your father's home, and go to a place I will show you. That's exactly what the various sources of Aeneas's inspiration say to him. Hector says it, Venus says it, uh, over and over again. That's the message he gets. You have to leave here and go to someplace else. And you have to wander. And you have the same thing in the Exodus story. The Israelite people have to leave Egypt. It's irredeemable. And the belly aching of the people who say, well, wait a minute, let's just settle down here. We'll see next week. They come to all these places and they say, this looks fine. Let's, let's just stay here. And Aeneas says, no, we're going to... He too wants to, you know. But then he has to, no, we can't settle here. We have to keep going. And then... The Israelites also experienced that in the exile at the end of the Old Testament epoch. Israel is conquered, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the Israelites are taken into Babylonian captivity. And you have the same thing. They leave everything behind. All they have, to use Virgil's imagery, all they have are their household gods, their penates, 
the Ark of the Covenant, the little sources of sacrality that they can carry with them and their story. Uh, that's all they have. I wanted to share two Old Testament passages. I could have picked out a million other passages, and one, I don't know why I picked these out, to be honest with you. But anyway, they came to me, so I picked them out. Uh, but I, I just want to share them with you as a way of seeing how Virgil compares to the mind of the Hebrew Scripture. You could say that. Instead of saying Ezekiel or the psalmist, or the mind of the Hebrew Scriptures sees much the same thing that Virgil sees, but it sees it more penetratingly than Virgil, at least at, in time. So I would quote two passages, one from the prophet Ezekiel and one from the psalmist of Psalm 51. Ezekiel was a priest in the Jerusalem cult at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the first deportation into Babylon, and he probably went in the first deportation to Babylon. His wife was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is true of Aeneas. Aeneas' wife was killed in the destruction of Troy. Uh, and he becomes an exile. He doesn't, he's not deported and shipped out, but uh, he becomes a wandering exile. And when uh, Ezekiel gets to uh, Babylon, he becomes a prophet. Uh, and he says this in one of his prophecies, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Quote. This, is, this is echoed a number of places. Jeremiah has an echo of this. Uh, God says, I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you and put a heart of flesh in you a softened heart. Virgil understands this in a vague way, at least with respect to Aeneas, but the scriptures understand that only a change in the human heart can bring about any kind of real transformation. The other thing about Virgil and the, the mind of the Old Testament is that both in contrast to many of the thought forms that, that were contemporaneous with them, both are intensely aware that what is happening in the world is happening in history. That history itself is not a cyclical thing the way the myths would have it, but a journey someplace. That humanity is on a, a maturation journey. So both Virgil and the biblical mind both recognize that. But Virgil holds out hope that one could come upon structures of civilizing power and then one could find sufficiently selfless leaders who could manipulate or operate those structures of civilizing power so that we could bring civilization into the world. The Hebrew scriptures, on the other hand, distrust all that. So when the elders say to Samuel, give us a king like the other nations have, Samuel hits his forehead. You know, it's like, oh, like the other nations have. Haven't you read the New York Times? I mean, this is not going anywhere. He knows that. Uh, so the, New the Old Testament scriptures know that if there's going to be any kind of real spiritual progress, it's going to have to be as a result of the transformation of the human heart, the changing of the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So I've just make note that there's a similarity and a difference there between the biblical mind and Virgil's thinking. And it comes out very powerfully in Psalm 51. 
the psalmist in Psalm 51 says, God, create a clean heart in me and put into me a new and constant spirit. Now, I want to stop on these things. This idea of a constant spirit here, a constant spirit is one that is not fickle. And a fickle spirit is one that is mimetically active. Or we would say, yeah, that would be a way of putting it. We, instead of sexually active. Most of what we call sexually active, it's really just mimetically active, which uh, in a world that thinks of nothing but genital. What the psalmist is praying for is a, a constant heart, a constant spirit, steadfastness. In other words, not the Jeremiah image of the, uh, of the camel in heat. Jeremiah talks to the people of Israel. He says, you're like a camel in heat, you know. You can't, you're, just, you're just like <laughs> running all over the place. <laughs> and this is, the tr this is the quintessential image of somebody who's so ungrounded and picks up so quickly on the mimetic stimuli that it, whatever happened, you know, whatever tune comes across the radio becomes the leitmotif of one's life for that week or something. It's like that. So anyway, so here's the psalmist is praying for something more steadfast. God created me a clean heart, put in me a new and constant spirit. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not deprive me of your Holy Spirit. He knows that the source of this constancy is God in prayer. So what, really what we're getting here is what G Gabriel Marcel calls the ontological moorings and Henri de Lubac calls ontological density. It comes from precisely this, a sense of transcendence, a sense of prayer, a sense that this constancy is not something that I achieved because of some kind of muscular determination. It's something I achieved because of a transcendental relationship. So this is quite powerful, and this is why the Psalms are so incredibly vibrant. Anyway, he goes on. Be my savior again, renew my joy, keep my spirit steady and willing. Keep my spirit steady and willing. And I would say the uh, clunky approximation of this, which you could say shows up in Virgil to some extent, is to misunderstand what it means to be steady and willing and to create a kind of parody of it, which is rigidity and willfulness. A rigid willfulness would be a parody of steadiness and willingness. Keep my spirit steady and willing, and I will teach transgressors the way to you. And to you, the sinners will return. That's the only hope. For the biblical mind, that's the only hope. None of these structures of, of power can save us. Although, were we waking up from the Rwandan nightmare, we would want these structures of power. We would be perfectly right to want them. Nevertheless, the biblical mind knows that ultimately power corrupts, etc., it will simply, it's just the same song, second verse, you see. So, then he says, deliver me from bloodshed, O God, my Savior, my tongue, and my tongue will proclaim your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for sacrifice gives you no pleasure. Were I to offer holocaust, you would not have it. So, here we have this very powerful theme that comes out of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is Precisely this kind of, I would call it interiority, although that begins to, that could veer off in the wrong direction because it's not interiority in the sense of just inside me. It's really a 
It's a testimony to, to a relationship, a transcendent relationship in prayer, and the effect of that on one's life. Uh, nevertheless, you could in some general way call it the emergence of interiority. That interiority emerges in precisely to the degree that the sacrificial system is renounced. So you get the renunciation of the sacrificial system at the end of this passage I'm quoting to you, and at the beginning of this passage is the, is the celebration of what was going to replace it, which is prayer. And you know, some Jewish scholar made the point in something I read not long ago, which is that uh, in Judaism, prayer replaces sacrifice. And that's absolutely it, you see. Anyway, so it says, uh, for sacrifice gives you no pleasure. Were I to offer holocaust, you would not have it. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then you get the real mystery opening up, and this is like Second Isaiah, the real mystery in the uh, opening up inside the Hebrew Scriptures itself, which is the realization that when I fail, when I'm defeated, when I'm hounded by all my contemporaries, when I'm uh, the victim of insults and, and uh, the castigation of others, then I'm closer to the living God than I am when I'm on top of the heap. And that's the great discovery of the Old Testament. I would say that's, that sums up the great spiritual discovery of the Old Testament. So I read that because you, we could go through this little litany and show that Virgil has intimations of all these things. They're only intimations, but he has intimations of them. He realizes that Aeneas is being made an instrument for the civilizing of the world by virtue of his defeats and his broken heart. So again, Virgil is aware to some extent of these things. To sum up, I would say that Virgil is vaguely aware of what the biblical mind is much more keenly aware of, namely that winning and losing are not two separate things, that we're not in a winning and losing world, or to put it the way I used to talk about it, this is not a life and death universe. It's a dying and rising universe. And there's a huge difference between the two. And if we think it's a life and death universe, we behave in a certain way. And if we come to realize it's a dying and rising universe, we are freed of those constraints and we behave in another more magnanimous way. Maybe a quick rundown of the cast of characters in this, in this uh, epic is in order. There's Aeneas, who's the son of Venus and Anchises. Uh, Anchises is an ally of the Trojans in the Trojan War. So then we have to talk about the Trojan War. The origin of the Trojan War is that at the marriage of Peleus and Thetis, Thetis is a goddess, Peleus is a mortal. At the marriage of Peleus and Thetis, they, they are the parents of Achilles. Everybody is invited except Eris, who is the goddess of strife. And she was so resentful at not being invited that she took a golden apple, which had a little note on it saying, for the fairest, and threw it over the hedge, and it rolled right to the feet of Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena. And they all reached down for it at the same time. Excuse me, it's my apple. <laughs> and a controversy broke out. And so the origin of the Trojan War is mimetic desire. And these three... 
the goddesses say, no, that's me. So they have a contest, and they can't decide, so they have to get Paris, who's a Trojan, to adjudicate the matter, and so they begin to bribe him. And Athena offers him power in war and wisdom. Hera offers him kingdoms, and Aphrodite offers him the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, he takes the most beautiful woman in the world and immediately gets the lifelong hatred, earns the lifelong hatred of not just not only for himself, but for all of Troy, the hatred of Hera and uh, Athena. Now, the Roman names for these goddesses are uh, Hera is Juno, Athena is Minerva, and Aphrodite is Venus. Now, the problem is that the most beautiful woman in the world has married somebody else, which is always the case. That's what makes her the most beautiful woman in the world. But for goddesses, this is no problem. So Paris goes and seduces her slash abducts her. And then her husband, Menelaus, who's a Greek, rallies the Greek forces and says, we've been offended. We must go and and reclaim Helen. And so Helen really is, is the cause of the war. She's the most beautiful woman. The Trojan War is a war at the center of which is mimetic desire and the rivalry that it generates. It couldn't be clear. It's perfectly clear. Well, in any event, so there you have it. Everything that happens in the story is happening because the gods are manipulating the thing. And the gods are Juno, who's the Roman Hera, and Juno is a source of nothing but chaos and violence in this story. And Venus who's Aeneas's mother, who is his special patron, of course, and Jupiter, who's the king of the gods, who in this story is the voice of assurance. He doesn't meddle too much in affairs. He leaves that to his brother Neptune, who's more or less the good guy, uh, who who checks the, uh, the, the, the violence sowed by uh, Juno. Uh, so you have Juno, Neptune... Uh, Jupiter and Venus and a whole cast of other characters. The humans are Aeneas, as I mentioned, his father Anchises, his son Ascanius or Iulus, he goes by two names, uh, his his wife Creusa, who dies early and uh, she dies in the in the destruction of Troy, and then when he reaches Carthage, the queen of Carthage is Dido. When he reaches Italy. The king of the of Latium is Latinus, and his wife is Amata, the queen. His daughter is Lavinia, who will become later Aeneas's Italian wife, and together they will sire the race that will uh, save the world. His enemy in, in Italy is Turnus, the uh, chief warrior of the Rutulians, a group of uh, more or less uh, Italian ruffians. And his, uh, Turnus's ally is uh, Camilla, who is a, who's the warrior woman of the Rutulians. Uh, the ally of Aeneas in Italy is Evander, and his son is Pallas, who becomes a cherished uh, colleague of Aeneas's and is killed by Turnus. So that's very quick. But what I want to do this morning is to not so much go through all the details of the story. I'm setting aside major portions of chapter one, to take up when we talk next week about chapter four, because it all has to do with Carthage, Dido, uh, etc., etc. What I want to talk about this morning is uh, the story starts in Media Res, as, as Horace described uh, Homer, in Media Res in the middle of the thing, and it starts with a, a storm, 
And once again, Aeneas, after all these trials, is beset by a storm, and the source of the storm is Juno, who has uh, gotten the god of the winds, Aeolus, to brew a storm that would throw Aeneas off his course. So it starts with a storm. The storm is calmed by Neptune and so on. But then they land at Carthage. Pretty soon they are befriended by Dido and her entourage, and Aeneas then tells the story of the past. So he goes back and tells the destruction of Troy. So what I want to do this morning is just talk about, more or less, about the destruction of Troy, noticing that Virgil knows too much. He already understands something about the sacrificial structures and their fragility and how when they break apart violence, the, the appearance of violence and the collapse of the sacrificial structures always are contemporaneous. And the question at the heart of Virgil's epic is, how do you turn chaos into order? What is the recipe for turning chaos into order? And so that's the burning issue at the heart of this whole story. How do you do it? Who can do it? What kind of person can do it? What must be his experience? He, how must his original impulses be broken? Because his original impulses uh, to respond to violence in kind, you know, as we say, to reciprocate violence, this impulse, which is the most powerful impulse, the impulse of revenge, must be broken. And he must be the kind of person that can resist that impulse. And then he must do certain things to bring order out of chaos. In a sense, he's a scientist trying to discover the cure for a disease. How do you bring order out of chaos? Virgil begins by asking the muse to help him. And he wants to, the muse to help him understand how a goddess can feel such resentment that she would hound somebody like Aeneas all his life. We have to realize that Virgil is living in a world where there's, he doesn't, he doesn't have Yahweh, much less the God of the New Testament. He has all of these totally unscrupulous Greco-Roman deities, and they're peevish and petty and, and selfish and resentful and, and uh, vengeful and all the rest of it. And still in all, Virgil has a kind of piety, and he, his hero has a kind of piety, but it's not the piety that can appeal to these gods and goddesses. He doesn't really feel that. You can tell Virgil doesn't really feel it. He doesn't mock it quite the way uh, Ovid does, but he, he doesn't feel it. And so Virgil is a kind of, I hadn't thought of putting it this way, but Virgil is a kind of early Hegelian, you know? He sees that uh, the transcendence that he appeals to is the transcendence of history. He realizes that the duty of Aeneas is not the duty to Jupiter or to Neptune or something like that. It's the duty to posterity. It's a historical duty, you see. So it lacks that special quality, that really powerful transcendent quality that you get in biblical thinking and biblical experience, which is the commitment uh, to the to the God of the biblical tradition. And Juno brews a storm. She gets Aeolus, the, the wind god, to brew a storm to knock Aeneas off course. And it says, at once, as soon as the storm comes up, it hits the ship. Uh, Virgil says, quote, at once Aeneas's limbs fall slack with chill. He groans and stretches both hands to the stars. He calls aloud, Oh, three or four times blessed are those who died before their father's eyes beneath the walls of Troy. 
the poem begins with, with Aeneas wishing he were dead. And his limbs fall slack. Here's a guy, it begins with him saying, I give up. I wish I were dead. There's a storm, and all the ships survive except one ship uh, is destroyed, and it's the ship captained by Orontes. And later on in book one, when um, Achates is talking to Dido, he explains, he's talking back, referring back to the storm they just survived, and he says, quote, you see that everything is safe, our ships and sailors saved, and only one is missing whom we ourselves saw sink, which seems like, well, it's just a, a, a piece of reporting. But we'll see as we go through this notion that when the gods are riled up, somebody has to die in order for everybody else to get free. There's always this notion that the gods once riled have to be thrown a sop. And the sop is always a corpse. They have to be given one if the rest of us are to, are to survive. So there is, in Virgil's understanding of things, a very powerful sacrificial understanding of things. And it's very much like Caiaphas. It's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. And, there, and that's very palpable in this poem. And it, sometimes it's expressed explicitly, and sometimes it just kind of surfaces the way it does here, very uh, obliquely. Uh, but I want to keep coming back to it because when we see in those little hints what Virgil knows about the situation. Now, Virgil is not offended by that. We are offended by it because the New Testament urges us to see it in moral terms. Uh, but Virgil was not offended by that. He just saw that that's the way it works, you see. And perhaps you could say that of Caiaphas, although Caiaphas probably was a product of his tradition enough to be to recognize its moral problems too, but Virgil doesn't see it as a moral problem so much. It's just the way things are. Okay, the storm is going on. Virgil says, quote, Neptune felt the fracas and the frenzy. He raised his tranquil head above the water. So he calms the storm. Now, remember when we were talking last week about the fourth Georgic and Virgil's uh, discourse on the bees, he's talking to Messinus, who's the political operative of for uh, uh, Augustus Caesar. And he says, uh, Messinus, I'm going to tell you about bees, but don't go to sleep on me because it's all really about culture. And this is Virgil. You know, that's, this poem is about culture. This poem is not about storms. You know, it's not about nature. Uh, it's about culture. So here we have this storm, and it's brewed by Juno. And so what are we to make of it? Well, Virgil says, Neptune calms the storm, and then he provides a metaphor or a simile for the calming of the storm, which is the cultural reference for it. He says, just as often when a crowd of people is rocked by a rebellion and the rampaging rabble rage in their minds and firebrands and stones fly fast, for fury finds its weapons, if by chance they see a man remarkable for righteousness and service, they are silent and stand attentively, and he controls their passions by his words and cools their spirits. So the clamor of the sea subsided. There you get the dramatist personae of the story, which is the forces of fury, furor, and the forces of calm and civilization, or pietas, piety. The two terms here, 
One is the rampaging rabble, ignoble vulgus, the common mob. And the other one is virum gravem pietate, which was variously translated the dedicated public man or something to that effect. Here he has righteousness and service, man remarkable for righteousness and service. I would say, now this is how Virgil sees the situation. You have, first of all, the mob, and Virgil knows about the mob. He would recognize, I mean, if Virgil could have read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, he would have recognized it instantly. That's the force you have to watch out for. We think in other terms, but if you look carefully, you realize it finally comes down to that. And that's what the New Testament shows you. New Testament shows you that the crucifixion occurred not because Pilate wanted it, not even because Herod wanted it or a chief priest wanted it or anything. It occurred because the crowd finally got whipped up to the place where they demanded it and nobody would stand in their way. And so finally it comes down to the rampaging rabble. And Virgil, you know, would have seen that right away. And so his solution to it is virum gravum pietate. Now, gravum here means for our word gravity or grave it's it means weight the word means weight and so i would take us back again to ontological density ontological mooring somebody who's not caught up in it who can actually be in the presence of that rampaging mob the thing about rampaging mobs is that they are so contagious that nobody notices there is one because as soon as you're close enough to see that there is one you're in it so it absorbs all its spectators those who might be able to recognize it for what it is are caught up in it and don't see it because they're part of it. So it, it eliminates spectators by absorbing them. And the question is, is there somebody that can resist absorption by that force? And Virgil says the only person that can do that is virum gravum pietate, the pious, weighty one. How can we be in the presence of the crowd contagion without being caught? Only in the biblical tradition, only by being God-centered. And for Virgil, it's something like that. It's gravum pietate. So this character can stand up and by virtue of his immunity to the scandal of the situation, he can break the power of it because the unanimity of the crowd is powerful but fragile. And if somebody breaks it, he will either become its next victim for having done that, or, but see here this idea of the gravum pietate, the, the, the idea is venerable one. And if he's venerated enough, if he has enough social prestige, he can call a halt to the crowd contagion and still not become its victim. And then it's dispersed. So I just mentioned that because it's clear that Virgil sees that the problem is the mob and the, how do you bring into play something that can disperse its violence. After the remaining ships land, they land on the coast of, of Africa, which, and pretty soon Aeneas and his people are going to go over and dis discover Carthage and meet Dido and everything. But before they do that, Aeneas is there and they're all, everybody is uh, completely worn out by this storm and everybody's ready to despair. And so Aeneas gives them a pep talk. And he says, comrades, surely... We're not ignorant of earlier disasters, we who have suffered things heavier than this. Our God will give an end to this as well. Call back your courage, send away your grieving fear. Perhaps one day you will remember even these our adversities with pleasure. And the key word here is perhaps. 
Perhaps, in other words, this is the best he can come up with. We may look back on this and and realize that this was quite a challenge or something, you know, that we made it through, you know, getting high by getting by. But the next thing he says, I mean, so it's a, it's a kind of a weak thing. You know. Maybe it'll all be made up to us, you know, in the end. But then it says, these are his words. Though sick with heavy cares, he counterfeits hope in his faith. His pain is held within, hidden. Now, this is Virgil writing in the first book of this epic about Aeneas, counterfeiting hope. And I would say that those lines finally apply to Virgil in terms of the whole poem. I think Virgil eventually does the same thing. He counterfeits hope. And hope is in the Pax Romana, Augustus Caesar, and all these. Virgil wants to believe in that because he has nothing else to believe. He has no alternative to it. In the end, and we'll see this when we get to book six, in the end, he counterfeits hope. In book two, Aeneas tells the story of the fall of Troy. The story is riddled with references to ritual sacrifice. And it's always ritual sacrifice that's breaking down. And so I just want to refer to that and show that as Virgil is telling this story, it's clear that he, at least intuitively, sees that there's a link between the outbreak of furor impious and the collapse of sacrificial structures. Unholy rage, unholy rage, furor impious, is really the, the dark problem at the heart of the epic. Unholy fury. So the first thing to look at is the Trojan horse, the famous Trojan horse thing. Odysseus, whose Roman name is Ulysses, is the beguiling Greek. He's the slimy character, the greasy character you can never trust. He's brilliant, you see, but he's always thinking of some stratagem. You know, the rest of them, they're the old uh, Homeric types, you know, they mono e mono, you know. Ulysses or Odysseus, he says, well, look, if we can outfox them, why bother? You know, let's do something tricky. He comes up with the idea of the Trojan horse. We fill it full of Greek soldiers. We trick them into taking it inside the citadel. They burst out of the belly of the thing and slaughter everybody and open the gates. The rest of us come in. We clean house. That's it. And uh, so they do it. Well, Laocoon is a priest of Apollo. He's a Trojan priest of Apollo. And the Trojans are scratching their heads saying, I don't know, the Greeks, they know the Greeks are famous for their guile. And so they say, I don't know if we should take this Trojan horse. And Laocoon says, beware of Greeks bearing gifts, essentially. And he takes a spear and throws it at the horse and it thunks, it hits the side of the Trojan horse. And he says, we can't do it. Meanwhile, shepherds find this Greek hiding in the countryside. Now, he's a double agent. Again, this is the Greek guile. He's pretending to be betraying the Greek cause. In fact, he's part of the scheme. So they bring him into the Trojan camp, and, and Priam, the king of Troy, questions him with his entourage. And he says, okay, and this guy's name is Sinon, and all the language now, book two is filled with language which has to do with serpent-like imagery. 
I mean, verbs and nouns, one after another, have to do. Sinon is the root of all these things has is serpent, sinuous, uh, slither, snake, serpentine. Da 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 da. Everything is slippery and serpentine and beguiling and snake-like. I mean, it's everywhere in book two. And Sinon is classic because his name is a cognitive of a word for a serpent. So Sinon is a typical beguiling Greek, and he comes in and Prime says, okay, tell us what, what were you doing out there? And here's what he says. Now, you remember now, Sinon is making this up, but it is, as Plato would say, a likely story. It's a story about sacrifice, which is perfectly plausible. Everybody recognizes its plausibility. And so I think we shouldn't forget the fact that that's true. And I just want to call attention to what we can learn about Virgil by listening to this story. Sinon says, Bewildered, we Greeks sent out Eurypylus to ask the oracle of Phoebus Apollo about our plight. We, can't, we couldn't win the war. We can't seem to get back to Greece. We're stuck here. What are we going to do? From the shrine, he brings back these grim words to us. This is the, the oracle of Apollo speaking to the Greeks who are saying they want to get back home. Really. By blood and by slaying of a virgin, you stilled the winds when you first came to Troy. This was when Agamemnon was going to the Trojan War. He got, he got stalled, becalmed, and the oracle says you have to offer your daughter, Iphigenia, you have to sacrifice her in order to get, and this is the same formula. It's better that one should die than that the whole campaign be brought to a halt, kind of a thing. So the oracle of Apollo says, by blood and by the slaying of a virgin, you still the wind when you first came to Troy. By blood, seek out your homeward way. The only offering that is suitable is an Argive life. Argive is another word for Greek. The only way you can get home. You got here, it's a, it's a round-trip ticket. You got here by sacrifice, you get home by sacrifice. Or it wasn't a round-trip ticket, I should say that. It's a one-way ticket each way. And so then Sinon says, and when the army heard this oracle, they were amazed. That's not a good translation. The word, I think it's the word, the root word for obscure, but amazed here is amazed. It's, very, it's a negative word. It's, they were horrified. They were shocked, you see. When the army heard this oracle, they were shocked. Within the Grecian's deepest marrow, cold fear shuddered. For whom has fate prepared this end, they thought? Whose life does Phoebus want? So this is the way the sacrificial system works. First of all, there's the announcement. You get this in the Old Testament too. Yahweh says, I'm going to rain wrath on you people. And you say, okay, just let that cook. Put that on the back burner. Let that cook for a while. Everybody's in, oh, God. And the question in it, suddenly you get the whole thing gets, you know, what, is there something we can do? Can we buy, can we, can we barter this down? Can we somehow offer one out, kick one out so this, the rest of us won't get it? Is there a lightning rod? Can we use a lightning rod for this wrath that's on its way? You see, you see what I'm saying? In the old sacred system, once the sentence is pronounced, you create a kind of mood of low-level panic which begins to extrude somewhat. <laughs> let's put him out there, the point man. Let's let him get it, you see. 
And it just happens spontaneously because everybody begins to think, it might be me. The Greeks turn it over to Colchis, the seer, the oracle. And it says, for twice ten days the seer is still secluded in his tent. His tongue refuses to name a single Greek or to betray death victim. Finally, with difficulty and driven by the Ithacan's loud urging, he breaks his silence and assigns me to the altar, Sinon says. They picked me to be sacrificed. Now, listen to this. All approved. What each feared for himself, he now endured when someone else was singled out. This is how the sacrificial system works, because this idea that it could be me creates the kind of anxiety so that when somebody else, it's somebody else, we immediately are tremendously predisposed to believe the myth that ended in their nomination. You see what I mean? Because it starts to make sense. Really, if you think about it. <laughs> we all feel that, I mean, this is terrible, you know. They talk about the, the Irish sporting green, you know, <laughs> the obituary page. <laughs> the fact that, that he died somehow means that I'm off the hook. <laughs> They're all convinced that this guy is telling the truth. So Priam releases him from his shackles, and he has a question about the horse now. He says, how about the horse? Sinon says to him that here's what happened. The Greeks had violated the shrine of Minerva, which is the Palladium. And Minerva said, you can neither defeat the Trojans nor get home until you offer atonement for that sacrilege. So Colchis delivered that judgment. And Sinon says, he warned them to build this effigy as their atonement for the Palladium, to serve as payment for their outrage against the goddess's image, to expiate so great a sacrilege. So they are inclined to bring the Trojan horse into the citadel. But you see, behind it is this sacrificial sensibility. Okay, now, the other thing is a little story within a story which is, I think, tremendously important in terms of the whole poem, and that's the story of Laocoon. Laocoon is the priest of Apollo who said, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. He threw his spear into the, into the horse, and he opposes it. Don't bring that thing in here. Laocoon, by lot named priest of Neptune, was sacrificing a giant bull upon the customary altar. When two snakes with endless coils from Tenedos, which is the island where the Greeks are camped, ready to return and lay siege to Troy, from Tenedos strike out across the tranquil deep these two serpents. The essential thing here is that when does this happen? It happens in the middle of a ritual sacrifice. The priest is sacrificing a bull. And here come these two serpents. Their eyes are drenched with blood and fire. They burn. They lick their hissing jaws with quivering tongues. They strike a straight line toward Laocoon. At first, each snake entwines the tiny bodies of his sons in an embrace, then feasts its fangs on their defenseless limbs. The pair next seize upon Laocoon himself. This is very much like the death of the two sons of Aaron in Leviticus. The two sons of Aaron are offering a ritual sacrifice and something goes awry. 
and there's a burst of flame, and the two priests are gone. They die. And the Hebrew scriptures are explicit about this, but the priests are the designated victims of a sacrificial ritual. If the substitute victim or the surrogate victim, which is usually an animal, if somehow that ritual breaks down, then there's a kind of buffer zone. You could say the ritual arena has a, has a fire break so that if things get out of hand, the ritual is violence. It's sacralized violence. And if it gets out of hand, then you have to have a kind of secondary system. It's like a nuclear power plant. If it overheats, you've got to have some backup cooling system. So otherwise, you have Chernobyl. So what do you do? You have a buffer, and the buffer is the priest. If it gets out of hand and human victims are going to have to die, the priests are the ones who are going to die, which is all the more reason for them to be careful when they perform the ritual because they, their lives are on the line. And the Hebrew scriptures are absolutely explicit about this. The Hebrew scriptures make it unmistakable, but it's true in other cultures as well. So here you have the, the priest offering sacrifice in the same way that Aaron's sons were offering sacrifice in Leviticus, and suddenly something goes awry and the two sons die and next, the high priest himself, you could say, is killed by these strange metaphysical beings. But listen to this. This tells you about it. The pair next sees upon Laocoon himself. He lifts high his hideous cries to heaven, just like the bellows of a wounded bull when it has fled the altar, shaking off an unsure axe. Now, isn't that fascinating? You see, what you have here is some little hint that the sacrifice of the bull didn't quite work and got out of hand. And what happens is that the priests are dying. When the bull shakes off an unsure axe, the sacrificial axe must be certain. It must be decisive. The word desideri means to cut. And the sacrificial cut must be absolutely decisive. Girard says, I think it's in his, in his commentary on Julius Caesar, he says, the sacrificial resolution is either instantaneous or it never occurs. It has to be decisive. And so if the sacrificial animal is hit with an unsure axe, then the sacrificial ritual breaks down, violence is let loose, the first visit of that violence will be on the sacrificial priesthood itself. And if that doesn't satisfy it, if that isn't sacralized, then it will break out all over the place. So the question is, will the sacrificial appetite be satisfied with the death of Laocoon and his son? And we'll come to that in a second. The answer is no. But the question is, that's ultimately the question. This text here is just pulsing with this issue. And to, just to go back to this idea of the unsure axe, if an unsure axe is wielded, then everything breaks out. In, term, in sacrificial terms, you could say, I say this in light of Robert McNamara's new book about Vietnam, it, Vietnam represented an unsure sacrificial axe in American history. You see what I'm saying? It was a sacrificial regime. It didn't work. And what happened? The society fell apart. The war came home. You see, it was that's what happened. And Nietzsche, a hundred years ago, was saying, this is the problem with Christianity. The problem with Christianity is that it, it 
condemns us to unsure axes. Because every time we raise that axe, we have moral misgivings. And Nietzsche says, if that's the case, we're doomed. We're doomed. So we need a race of supermen who will be able to just put those moral misgivings somewhere in the back of their minds and get on with what has to be done. You see? It's all right here. The whole, the whole modern crisis is right here in these lines. At this, a stranger terror makes its way through every trembling heart. Laocoon has justly paid the penalty, they say, for outrage since his spearhead had profaned the sacred oak, his cursed shaft been cast against the horse's back. In the same way that the crowd in Sinon's story, which is a fictional story, when finally, oh, Sinon is the one? Oh, well, sure, I understand that. This, that makes sense. There's all kinds of reasons. So the rationalization by the Greeks about Sinon's choice as the sacrificial victim is instantaneous. And likewise, the Trojans begin immediately to recognize the wisdom of Laocoon's murder. Oh, well, yeah, isn't he the one that threw the shaft? And I see, yeah, well, it all falls into place. And this impulse is the impulse to sacralize it, to return to normal, to see that last violence as decisive final violence. The Greeks come out of the belly of the thing, open the gates, all, all hell breaks loose, violence is everywhere, everybody's being slaughtered. Troy is engulfed in violence. Beneath the naked round of heaven at the center of the palace stood a giant shrine. At its side, an ancient laurel leaned across the altar stone, and it embraced the household gods within its shadow. This household gods is a, is a little bit like the Ark of the Covenant. It's the, it's the penates, the, the tokens of the sacrality that now Aeneas is going to take with him on his journey. It's kind of the sacred seed corn of the new culture. Here, around this sacred shrine and altar stone, here, around the useless altar, Hecuba, who's the wife of Priam, together with her daughters, huddled. So this altar now, suddenly, we've had these references, all these sacrificial references, and now violence is everywhere, and the altar is referred to as useless. And it's only useful, it's only functioning. When it's functioning, really, useful, you don't have that violence because it's the lightning rod that takes care of it. Around that useless altar is Hecuba. Priam, the old, old Priam, is putting on his armor. He can hardly walk, you know, but he's going to be a hero and die with his boots on or whatever. And, he, and Hecuba goes to him. She says, this is no time for such defense and help. Not even were my Hector here himself. Hector is the great champion of the Trojans who was killed by Achilles. Not even if Hector were here himself. Come, she says. Pray, this altar shall yet save us, or you shall die together with us. So she says, this altar will save us. Come over here. And she sits him on the sacred seat. And now, I mean, that's the Virgil's, in a way, it's a framing of it. It's a useless altar. She says it's going to save us. Let's find out. Is it? And in burst Pyrrhus, who's the son of Achilles. And this, one of the sons of Priam, Polites, stands up and says, Don't kill the old man. Even your father, the great Achilles, spared the life of this old man. 
And Pyrrhus says to him, will you take a message to my father because I'm about to send you to hell. <laughs> Carry off these tidings. Go and bring this message to my father, son of Peleus. And remember, let him know my sorry doings, how degenerate is Neoptolemus, which is another name for Pyrrhus. Now die. This said, he dragged him to the very altar stone with Priam shuddering and slipping in the blood that streamed from his own son. And Pyrrhus with his left hand clutched, the, clutched tight the hair of old Priam. His right hand drew his glistening blade. Then he buried it hilt high in the king's side. So Hecuba had said, this, this altar will save us. And Pyrrhus burst in. He's just pure violence. And he just lays waste the place. But all of this has to do with sacrifice. The sacrificial regime has broken down and now there's uncontrollable violence. And in terms of the old anthropology, this is precisely it. When the sacrificial structures begin to break down, culture falls apart. When culture falls apart, the sacrificial structures fail. In other words, forces are let loose in the world that are so scandalous that the existing sacrificial apparatus can't resolve them. Now we're, now we're trying to see this poem anthropologically. To introduce that, I'd read two things. Uh, one from uh, Victor Poschel, I quoted him earlier. He says, there's more at stake here than just the question of Virgil. It concerns the foundations of Western civilization. We are seeking ties of communication that bind us together. We must therefore reestablish a firm place for the Aeneid in our cultural consciousness as one of the Bibles of the Western world, end quote. And against the grain of Poschel's argument, I would say that's right, but a Bible of the Western world, in that it does for us what the Hebrew Bible does for us, which is it makes it palpably clear to us, if we read it correctly, I think, that these two things sacrifice and cultural order are tied together anthropologically and that if you start to move away from sacrifice you better have some other system for resolving things and Virgil in a sense is talking about a world that's breaking away from ritual sacrifice and he's trying to bring another world into being and it turns out that he brings the other world into being sacrificially it's just not ritual sacrifice it's almost ritual sacrifice the killing of Turnus at the end of the poem is almost a ritual sacrifice. The killing of the figures that die in the course of the story have a, a very definite sacrificial motif to them, but they're not laying somebody on the altar, so they're not explicit. So he's tr he, in a way, he's documenting the collapse of the old order, and he's hoping for a new order, but he has none in sight. He has none in sight. So it ends with, a, the moral defeat of Aeneas is when he kills Turnus at the end because he, he founds the new order on a foundation sacrifice. The killing of Turnus is a foundation sacrifice. So he has not fundamentally broken with the old order. But at least he recognizes implicitly that the old order uh, is collapsing. He doesn't recognize it with the power that the biblical text recognizes. One other quote here, and that is from T.S. Eliot. Uh, he said what interested him about Virgil was, quote, those characteristics of Virgil which render him peculiarly sympathetic to the Christian mind. And later in the same essay, he said, if the word inspiration is to have any meaning, it must mean just this, 
that the speaker or writer is uttering something which he does not wholly understand or which he may even misinterpret when the inspiration has departed from him. I think that's absolutely true of Virgil. I think he's writing something which he does not wholly understand. And so he tends to misinterpret it from time to time. 